This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Go With Yammo. Go With Yammo is an art exhibition app which helps you to find the exhibitions, art fairs and art events happening all around you. The app displays exhibitions based on your location, so the one closest to you will be at the top of the list, but if you're planning a trip, you can of course change your location to a different city. What makes the app really fun is that whenever you are at an exhibition, you can check in and earn points, which can then be used to redeem prizes from the in-app store, such as prints, exhibition tickets, books and more. Go With Yamo also create custom virtual exhibitions for galleries and artists. They will be creating the virtual space for our upcoming Art on a Postcard summer auction, which is definitely worth checking out. You can find all of these on their website, along with some great blog content, including artist interviews, exhibition recommendations, quizzes and reviews. The app is free to download from the App Store and the Google Play Store, so make sure you check it out and visit their website, www.gowithyamo.com. That's www.g-o-w-i-t-h-y-a-m-o.com. Hello and welcome to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. I hope that you're all doing wonderfully well. If you're a UK listener, I hope you're enjoying the sunshine that we're finally getting. And if you're elsewhere in the world, then yes, that is right. The UK does have sunshine for at least some of the year. It does stop raining here. Um, And over here at Art on a Postcard, we're just two weeks away from our exhibition at the Hoxton Gallery of our sum- for our summer auction. Um, so make sure that you RSVP to our private view, which you can do on our website. There's very clear instructions on how to do that, Um And it's just going to be so nice to see some of you again and meet new supporters of Art on a Postcard. If you are new also to the podcast, then welcome, welcome. Please feel free to browse previous episodes of which there are many now. So that's good. Stick with us now though for today's podcast though first where I interview the wonderful Margaret Rose Vendries. So Margaret has to be one of the most interesting, kind and warm people I've met in such a long time. You'll hear in the podcast her humour and wisdom just beaming out of the podcast the whole way through um, and into your consciousness wherever that might be in the world. So we discuss in the episode divas, academia, the role of bias within the art world um, and of course Margaret's cards. So Margaret is a participating auction, a participating auction, Margaret is a participating artist in our summer auction and her lots are 136 to 138 and I really do urge you to go and take a look before, during or after the episode at the fabulous cards on our website www.artandbostcard.com Margaret Rose Vendries is an art historian, visual artist and curator. She received her BA in Fine Arts from Amherst College, MA in Art History from Tulane University and PhD in Art History from Princeton University. 
Among several honours, Vendries was an American Association of University Women Fellow and a scholar in residence at the Skomberg Centre for Research in Black Culture. In 2008, University Press of Mississippi published Vendry's book Barté, A Life in Sculpture, the first comprehensive monograph on the late African-American sculpture Richmond Barté. The African Diva project that we discuss in the episode is a multimedia body of work that reveals Vendry's engagement with African art and aesthetics and its intersection with black celebrities and visual culture. The project began in 2008 and has grown to over 75 works of art, including paintings on canvas and paper, digital compositions, collage, interactive installation and outdoor art exhibitions. As I said, I know you're going to love this episode. You're going to fall in love with Margaret the same way I did. And be sure to check out her cards on our website. See you at the end of the episode. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> afternoon for you. Your day's almost done, huh? Uh-huh. I'm coming to the end of my working day as yours is just beginning. Or... beginning. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this is my studio corner. Mm-hmm. It's a little bare now because I have a show that opens on Saturday in Harlem. Yeah. And and so a lot of the things that were sort of around here are now there. Yeah, great. Um, what kind of a space do you tend to enjoy working in? I like working at home. Mm-hmm. I have I have a, a decent sized apartment and a third of my living room is a space I have cordoned off for studio work. So it's about a nine by 12 space it's not huge but it doesn't feel tight because the rest of the room is right there yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's not you know there's a a wall of african art i collect i collect african art and so i have them on a long um storage cabinet credenza kind of space here Mm -hmm. and and so i can see through them into the the common the common area of the wow. living room. I like working at home just because I, you know, I'm a very early riser, mm-hmm. which means I'm pretty much useless after 10 p.m. <laughs> I don't do I don't do anything innovative after 10 p.m. <laughs> it's like TV time, you know, I'm I'm completely fried. <laughs> but you know, in the morning, I'm I'm up at five, sometimes earlier than five. And you know, after my coffee I'm ready to roll Mm. so I I get a lot of things done early in the morning and I've always been like that um a lot of people think that once you become you know a senior citizen (laughs) I am (laughs) at 66 that you know older people tend to get up early in the morning but I've always been like this so it has nothing to do with with age Mm. Um, it's just my constitution Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, looking at your works to research for this podcast, it is 
no wonder to me that that is the case just because of how prolific you are and just like how many different mediums how many you know your ventures into academia and your artistic practice and just like there's so much that you have done and continue to do that I can imagine waking up at midday as some artists I've spoken to do and that's fine because they work later on in the day mm -hmm. I can imagine you know you got to get places you got things to do right right I do a lot of prep work in the morning and when I'm teaching I generally teach in in the late morning into the afternoon and when I was younger and a new academic a new professor I did teach evening classes which was wonderful because I got the older students mm. You know, the students that were um, continuing ed or finishing their degrees and they come to my class after work. Uh -huh. And so you really have to be an animated professor when you're teaching people who are tired, mm. you know, yeah. and they're learning art history. <laughs> you know, and it's very, very hard to stay engaged with a topic that you might not feel you're going to be able to use much of mm -hmm. after the class is over. Mm -hmm. I tended to get a lot of students who were filling in a liberal arts core with my class and not necessarily students that are particularly interested in art history mm -hmm. or in art at all. Uh, they leave my class being much more interested or at least I like to believe that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that I have changed the minds of people around the value of engaging with the visual arts. Mm. Um, I do believe I can do that. And I have done that over the decades that I've been teaching art history. That's incredible. I'd love to come to one of your lectures. <laughs> um, what's your approach to lecturing? I tend to lecture and pepper it with with my own um, sort of personal impact of the, of the work that I'm looking at, especially if it's something that I've seen mm -hmm. in, in real life. I, I stress very often you're, you're, you're taking in an image that has light thrown through it. It's not the original. There's so much missing. Uh, students miss, under, they don't understand that if they saw it on their computer screen that they haven't seen it. Mm. You know, even if it's a photograph. Mm -hmm. You know, distorts less when you're looking at it in a, um, in a digital form, but it's still distorted. Mm. So yeah. I do, I talk about my travels. I, I talk about, um, and I allow them to speak to the objects as well. I think that's very important. And when it comes to people who are standing before my paintings, because I know what I do to other artists' paintings, be they living artists or, you know, long gone um, historical uh, artists. I want to hear about the impact. I don't really need for them as, and, and, and often I will not address myself as the artist. Mm -hmm. I just engage in a conversation because that's meaningful to me. Whether or not my intentions in making a painting is, is going is is coming across uh, or whether they see something that I didn't realize I had done which is always you know magical mm. <laughs> it's always 
wonderful to have a fresh eye, look at something that you spent months and months, you know, pouring over and they see something that I wouldn't even thought of. Mm -hmm. As a, as an artist, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's something universally kind of acknowledged about artists and within the artist community as well, that there is also a sense of a kind of ego and a kind of a desire to kind of own your own work as well. Do you ever find yourself sort of challenging other people's perceptions of your own artwork or being precious about certain ideas and saying, that's not what it was about? Or are you, are you someone oh, who's- No, yeah, no, no, no. I, I have been put in a position to challenge. Actually, very early in my career, I had an older woman, older than me, believe it or not, say to me, actually, she came up to me in an exhibition, a solo of my work, and she said, somebody told me you were the artist. I mean, first of all, she didn't believe it. <laughs> she said, somebody told me you were the artist. Is that, is that true? And I said, well, yeah. She said, well, I could not believe that a woman would be painting Black women in these provocative ways and perpetuating the stereotypes of them being available and hypersexual. And I looked at her and I was like, but don't you think they're beautiful? (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's not even where my head is at. I said, but now, she said, now that I see that you're a black woman, I have to rethink how I feel about it. I have some real serious problems with the identity of the artist being pressed so firmly into everything that's being read Uh in the work. I, you know, this project, there's no way to get away from it. I've been told that there's no way that a a white person would have made this project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And which is unfortunate. Mm. that is this something when I was reading about you and your work and um, your research one of the things that came up is that you have warned against what you call the race-centered approach to interpreting artworks is this that approach that you kind of take umbrage with yes I I I believe that it's not insignificant but it shouldn't be primary. In other words, the the quality of the work, the craftsmanship, the the narrative that is in play, all of that should be primary to whether or not the artist is the right race or gender or uh, sexual orientation or age in order to have authority and take agency over the material. Right. Yeah. It's just, I don't, I don't, I don't hear enough about my work as what a good painter she yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I had four art classes in my entire life. Four. Mm-hmm in college, in the 80s, everything else that I could do on that canvas, I taught myself. Yeah, yeah. But nobody talks about the craftsmanship. Right. You know, the the choice of materials, the script in the back. Do you know how many people don't even know that there's writing in the back of my paintings? Mm -hmm. They're Mm -hmm. like, what? I said, well, the titles of the (laughs) 
Oh, let me go look a little closer. I mean, that race gets in the way of what else is there. Mm. It, it erases so much of what I have done. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's more to come because I'm a lesbian. So I'm, I still have not had anyone write about my work and say, well, the lesbian perspective, <laughs> she's doing all these women and the men, except for Ray Charles, who's, who's in this series over there. Ray Charles is the only uh, cisgender male in the project so far. RuPaul's in there, uh, Billy Porter is in there, and, and they are, you know, queer. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. That hasn't happened yet. Nobody said, well, of course she knows how to do a woman's body. She's mm -hmm. a loving woman. Mm, yeah. Mm. And I suppose it must be frustrating being in the sort of the arts um which is predominantly a, like a white space where I, I i can imagine you would get a lot of white liberals who would talk about your work with putting race at the center trying their best to be sort of um you know inclusive or whatever but they're not mm -hmm. actually taking into consideration that they are simultaneously being trying to be so right that they're actually erasing your Right, right. Your skill as an artist. And that's happening even more now. Ever since, you know, the, the rise in, in the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, this idea of diversifying all spheres of, of, um, of life and, and society and to be more inclusive, to make things more accessible to more people, all of that kind of stuff. The race part of it has been so dominant, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing because so much has happened to overlook, especially the artistic merit of many, many producers and creatives, especially in this country. Yeah. but it's global. Mm -hmm. So I, there's no way that I can actually remove myself from that because I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I just want more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, want, I want things to be more expansive. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the way they have always been expansive for the white male artists that have dominated the, the, the marketplace and the scene forever. Mm -hmm. And it's hard work. Yeah. Yeah, it's putting a lot of people on point. It's putting a lot of writers, you know, where I haven't really looked at things in this way before. Where can I go? Where do I look? Where do I start to be more inclusive to diversify um, the artists and the places I go to see art and to write about art. Mm -hmm. One of my uh, bucket list items is to be written about in one of the major rags for the art world, you know, Art News or Art in America or the Forum for some reason. I don't know for what reason yet, but <laughs> with that, that's like on my bucket list. Hopefully it'll be for a good reason about the work itself yeah. and not something that happens to me that I 
wish didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's news too, you know, it isn't always a, a good thing. Like looking at uh, visiting an, an exhibition, like I have a solo in a small gallery in Harlem called Calabar, uh, the Calabar Gallery on 134th Street. And it, what you wouldn't necessarily see uh, somebody coming from even hyperallergic to go down into Harlem. But now because the pandemic uh, issue is in place and things are starting to lift and the galleries are opening, maybe timing <laughs> is right for my work to um, be reviewed in a serious way, but it will be around, oh, Harlem is opening back up and the galleries are opening back up and you know, this one is happening now. Not necessarily. Let me go see what Vendries is doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Always through these kinds of. Um... Right. Right. So it's sort of riding a wave that isn't necessarily about the work. Mm-hmm. But well, I more... think it would be a terrible shame if your work uh, isn't properly reviewed by one of these uh, organizations, because having looked through your work for the research for this podcast, it's cannot actually I did not know that you'd only had four art lessons which is seems just <laughs> absurd to me yeah. um, I mean kind of unbelievable like truly um but so what were these four art lessons and then how did you take it upon yourself just to say I'm just going to make this something that I do okay well the art lessons were taken in college which was in the 1980s So this is pre a lot of technology. And I actually became an art history major. And I went to Amherst College, it's in Western Massachusetts. And in your junior year, you had to make a decision as a fine arts major, whether you're going to do studio or art history. And you had, and then you sort of moved your, your classes were heavier in one area than the other, depending on your choice. And I had an art history professor who said to me, I, I want to be your advisor. He's, he's since passed. I want to be your advisor. And I think you should do art history because I was interested in African-American art. And in the eighties, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of writing and research being done about African-American artists. He said, you're needed in this area. You can always, you can always paint. You can always be an artist. Turns out that he was a closet painter himself and he never ever told me that. Mm -hmm. But I ended up taking his advice. And yeah, I was an older student. So I had two kids when I graduated from college. Both of them were at my graduation. So it was, it was also more practical for me to look at doing something that was um, honing my skill as a writer. And in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I'll go to graduate school. I'll, I'll, I'll pursue this a little further because I wanted his life. This was a white man. I wanted his life. This was somebody when I was doing my research in the library, he came in in his house shoes, right? because he lived across the street from the campus. He came in through the library in his house shoes and his, and his little duster and sat down with a book that he pulled off the shelf. And I was like, I want that life, <laughs> you know? which I actually never got because I, you know, I had to raise kids throughout all of most of this, mm-hmm. but I wanted the, that intellectual life. 
I, I wanted the, the freedom to spend time with books. I did like that, but I liked painting too. Yeah. So I had to take these four classes because it was part of the fine arts degree. So I took the basic survey class of two-dimensional. You learn how to draw, you learn how to paint, you have the life model. The one thing that, and, and things have changed because there's no more turpentine. It's not as toxic an environment as it was when I learned how to paint. Yeah. But there was, we had this huge studio space at Amherst with these humongous windows, thank God, for air. And the smell of the turpentine made my, the hair on my hands rise up. I loved it. I loved it. I loved the mess that you could make on that surface with color and with line. I wasn't very good. I mean, the stuff that I had, I have one thing left over. My sister has it on her wall. God bless her. You know, from the 1980s, I wasn't terribly good, but I liked trying. And I liked knowing how to do things. Like he taught us how to stretch a canvas. I still stretch my own canvas. Right. You know, that you know, stretch and prime the whole thing. Yeah, I, I learned how to use the tool safely, how to mix my own medium, which I don't do anymore because don't need to. <laughs> you know, how to how to mix colors, all the stuff that is like the basic, basic, basic stuff. And then how to read, how to read the figure how to understand compositional space, you know, negative and positive. Well, I learned that four classes. Okay. I took a drawing class. I learned how to use pastels instead of paint. Not really me. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And it was, it was all I actually needed yeah. to make myself feel like I was an artist. Right, yeah. Because I suppose you always were and you always are you know it's not like a state yeah, yeah. they kind of provided you with the initial here's the stuff and then now right right and then you know what feels good and what doesn't feel good mm-hmm. you know you you there's some things that I gravitate towards like I I I enjoy the challenge of the figure I like figurative work so I'm not I don't feel pushed to, do, to go figurative because right now pretty much all of the black art in this country that's getting any note is figurative. Mm-hmm. The living artists that are working right now, most of it is figurative. There's a few um, abstract artists, but not many. And that's actually always been the case historically mm-hmm. that the abstract um, African-American artists tend to blend in but don't necessarily get their due as, um, as being in line with the other abstract artists out there. Mm. So there's, there's that discrimination is there. It's a, it's a strange position to be in because you're, you're not being read as black in your work, but people know who you are when you're a living artist. Yeah, And I'm not quite sure what to do with it. The whole idea of identity being attached to the work of art is, um, is, is a problem. Mm -hmm. It really is a problem, but it it isn't for me because I, I am a figurative artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it, that is, that is my passion that, that works for me. Um, I, I am particularly enjoy the female body because I find it much more, 
complex, not just in its actual physical makeup, but how it is presented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'm working with a lot of costuming. I mean, even with the, the few nudes that I have been able to make, there's still a costuming mm-hmm. going on right. with the body. You know, that the Lizzo piece that's in the show in Harlem, it's, it really was about the lighting and, and her skin is oiled and it's folded up on itself and it's quite beautiful, but it's still costumed. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, you know, it's not your basic nude nude. Mm-hmm. Uh, the right. nude is a different kind of nude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. That brings us nicely towards your African diva project as an ongoing painting series that began in 2005. Um, where is it now? How did it start? And why are you drawn? I mean, I say this, why are you drawn? I mean, it kind of is self-explanatory just because divas are divas and we're always fascinated. And we love them. We love yes. them. And we hate them too. We envy them. Uh-huh. We get a great amount of jealousy in, in many of us. You know, why couldn't, why couldn't I have that look or that, you know, that sparkle, all of that. But they're special. Mm-hmm. Uh, celebrities are special. And Black celebrities, to me, are even more special. Mm-hmm. because they have to reach deeper in order to meet the needs of a large expansive audience. Mm-hmm. It's a little less so now because we are more integrated than we have been in the past. So some of my early divas like Lena Horne, you know, she, she had to struggle to reach a a wider audience and to sell her music and to sell her performances um, and to try and find a place where integration made sense. Mm -hmm. The same thing with um, Josephine Baker, whose painting I finally finished just last month (laughs) in the banana. And that's that's the um, postcard. Right. created for for the hep c um auction mm-hmm. yeah so you know i it started with my youngest son uh-huh. Here, here's his story yeah. i haven't told this one in a long time started <laughs> with my youngest son who is um a shop owner in san diego now he wasn't at that time and he sells um hip-hop and he sells vinyl right? Which is very rarefied, even though analog is coming back just because it's now rarefied. And he brought to me and gave me a Donna Summer album um, called Four Seasons of Love. And this was not an album that I had owned myself, but on the back of the album, Donna Summers was doing the uh, seven-year itch Marilyn Monroe with the white dress blowing up you know, it's that iconic image, but she's black. (laughs) Of course, it was Donna Summer being Summer as Mel Monroe. And that thing blew me away. I was like, I have to do something with this. I actually didn't know what I was going to do with it. And Mm -hmm. this is, this is at a time too, where vinyl had become a thing of my past even very much it was a part of my past, but the tonnage 
of moving and we moved quite a bit when my kids were young. Um, the tonnage of moving albums was just had gotten to be too much. And so much had been moved to CDs and then it became MP3s, you know, that kind of thing. So I started getting rid of my albums. As a matter of fact, all the apparatus around the album was disappearing as well. The turntables, the tuners, the receivers, all that equipment that comes with listening to music um, had kind of passed. So he gave me this album and I sat it on my, and this was, I was already doing art history. I was already teaching art history. I had finished the PhD. That was 1997, I finished the PhD. So I was deep into doing art history and painting on the side. And I, you know, I painted portraits of family. I just painted for my own enjoyment. I didn't in any way uh, make efforts to share my work in public. And I, sat with this album for a long time and then i said you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna paint this so i stressed the canvas it felt really good too and a fairly good size canvas too because i was painting really small i wasn't giving myself any room to do that kind of stuff and i it took me several years like two years to finish that painting because i didn't know where i was going yeah and I hadn't painted from a photograph in a long time. And that was different too. Painting from two dimension to two dimension is having a two dimensional model is a whole nother way of looking at and making decisions about scale, et cetera. Um, and then I didn't want to paint her face because her face was really, really painted. She almost looked like she had kabuki paint on. I mean, it was that in that album, she has like very, very big red lips and she just is totally painted. And so in the corner of my library, really, because then I was doing deep art history. I was like deep into art history. I was writing my book. I have one single author book. I mean, I have a lot of articles, but I have one book. And I saw an African mask that I bought in a yard sale in Princeton for 20 bucks, which I thought was a lot of money. That was like my, the first mask I'd ever bought. It was absolutely gorgeous. Now I will never let go of it. A ballet mask. And I saw the mask and I saw the painting, saw the mask, and I said, you know what? That's it. That's it. Wow. It's it's the, the face doesn't, she has a mask. I have to give her the right kind of mask. I have to give her an African mask. That was it. Mm -hmm. and the idea of calling it the Africa Diva Project came a little bit later. Uh -huh. That was all my fabrication as well. You know, it's the kind of thing you come up with when you get up at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I painted the mask on there and I, was, I said, well, I wanna do this again. So I did the front of the album. So Donna Summer has the front and the back. Yeah. I, I still have that's my catalyst. I call her my catalyst. I, I won't sell that or the mask, but the front one went quickly right after Donna, Donna Summers died. Two weeks later, that painting sold. Wow. Yeah, but then Whitney Houston, I painted Whitney Houston while she was still alive. And when she died, I still own the painting. Mm. So it's like, that doesn't, seem to have the gauge or maybe just the relationship of the public to Whitney is very different. But um, yeah, I'm actually surprised because the Donis, the um, Whitney Houston painting is actually pretty cool. Uh -huh. I, I think. Anyway, it's in the Harlem show. Oh, it's in the Harlem show. Yeah, the curator, right. 
Anyone that we do have some listeners in New York, so any listeners in New York get down to the Harlem. Right. Yeah. yeah, the Calabar Gallery, 134th Street in Harlem. Go see it. It's yeah. open until the 13th of July. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very Brilliant. cool. Very yeah. cool. Yes. Yeah. So then I just took off. I I did, I said, okay, this could go on for the rest of my life. And it looks like it is gonna do that. But I said, I'm gonna give it parameters okay so I said okay I'm gonna do 33 and a third paintings mm-hmm. rpms <laughs> of an lp is 33 and a third that's that's it so I said okay yes 33 and a third paintings right and then it'll be over and then it'll be the whole project and that'll be it okay so Margaret's painting <laughs> I actually quit a tenured job Wow. Tenured. I was tenured. I left a tenured job to paint. Mm-hmm. Good for you. And I did for seven years. I went back and got tenured again, actually at the same place at York College. <laughs> that's, that's a longer story. But so I had this opportunity to just paint and teach part-time. And I got to 33 and then I was like, well, where's the third? Yeah. How am I going to do the third? And then one morning at five o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> five o'clock, it dawned on me, the Supremes. There's three of them. Only one made it, Dinah Ross. If I took a 60-inch square and made a third of it, mm-hmm. 20 by 60, and only put Diana Ross in there from their first album. They call it the Stools album. Just Diana Ross, I have my third. Wow. That's and clever. I was like, <laughs> so that's the only one that's not square. Okay. 20 by 60, that was a third. Uh-huh. And then I said, what's next, Margaret? what are you gonna do because you have a bunch of albums that you haven't used you know because I would go into the to the used album places looking for images more so than music looking for images and I said you know there's there's more divas in me so I came up with the idea of having side a which is finished now the side b because you remember, vinyl has two sides. Yes, this is just so genius. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> so, you know, side B is the ones that have the actual mask on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's when I started to, instead of painting the mask, which I did, I painted the mask on paper and attached them to the canvas in the side A. I started figuring out how I could actually position the yeah. mask itself. Mm-hmm. on the canvas which is very creative from the back mm-hmm. you can do a lot with wood it's it's the wood is very forgiving right my issue was scale mm-hmm. because if you're putting a, a a normal size mass which is usually 10 to 12 inches in height on a canvas and you're trying to keep it in scale with the body of the image that you've painted we're talking huge canvases uh-huh 
Mm -hmm. So I had to figure out how to do it differently. And so I started, I'll, I'll show you one of them here. I started collecting these little miniatures. Oh, yeah. You see this one, there's a Dan mask on, on Solange in the back there. Yeah. And so that became an obsession, finding the miniatures. Where do you find them? Some of these I found on eBay. Some of them I find in thrift stores. Um, they're out there. Of course, it's all, it's all market product. It's all made in Africa. My, my main concern is that it's well-made and that it's made in Africa yeah. and that it speaks to a tradition of a people. Mm -hmm. Because I attach the name of the mask and the name of the celebrity to my titles. Mm -hmm. So that a Punu mask, whoever it goes on, it would be, you know, Punu person's name. Right. That kind of thing. So that the two are merged in not just what you see, but what you read as well. Yeah. 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 And then I started putting the lyrics of one song in the back instead of all the titles. So mm -hmm. side A has titles in the background, which is why I use a wax mm -hmm. so that I don't have to use tons and tons of paint, but I don't lose the saturation of the color mm. when, I, when I pump it up so that it has texture. And then I write, I write in the background. So I don't sign my paintings because that's my handwriting all over them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think it's it's such a beautiful, the project is such a beautiful symbiosis of so many things and, and, and a kind of integration of so many different ideas and features. And I love how sort of, I mean, this must be, I guess, because you are such a prolific art historian, it must mean that, I mean, I'm guessing here, how much does that inform your approach to creating art? Because actually, that being said, you know, there are those 5 a.m. moments for you that come almost like eureka moments that are kind of unknown as to exactly what triggers them, but they're kind of the more um, artistic kind of creative zing moments that artists tend to get. But then also this marrying of sort of like, you know, using wax, obviously also being, you know, wax records being made out of wax and the mm -hmm. sizing of things and mm -hmm. just how like it it gives me chills genuinely like I'm getting chills I'm talking to you. just how everything's like fitting so beautifully and I wonder does that come from a sort of careful consideration that you may have got through your academic practice or yes and no right the, the connection with with the wax came later actually um, it was a very sort of practical thing, a choice that I had made uh, in terms of having um, a medium that would plump up my paint itself. But after I started using it and writing in it and thinking about and talking about vinyl uh -huh. and my relationship with, with uh, engaging with music when I was a young person through vinyl and through putting the needle into the grooves. And I thought about my paintings and I went, oh, yeah. Because I, I write there so that they will speak. Mm -hmm. I mean, through, of course, it's, it's all about, you know, being literate, uh, but you can, I can hear the songs through reading what's in the background. Mm -hmm. 
So, and you can hear that when you put the needle down into the grooves of the vinyl. So, it, and then of course, yes, historically it be, they began as wax. So it, but it wasn't conscious conscious to choose wax to do that. That was serendipity or coincidence or whatever. But in terms of what I know about art history, I have to say, knowing some of the lives that artists led, uh, the, the trials, the difficulties, the, um, the disproportionate attention they got based on what their talents were, the yeah. fact that many of them get no recognition until they're dead. <laughs> you know, I think about that. Yeah. I think about, and that's part of the reason why I continue to do things like this, to put myself forward, because I want to know how people feel about my work while I'm still here, rather than have my ancestors, you know, have my, um, my heirs be the ones that get to know that. Because yeah. we don't know what's next. Who knows if I could end up being actually around. Mm -hmm. kind of scary because I'm tired it's, you know life has been really difficult lately this this last year sucked you know this was really hard really I mean this is this was like a burnout semester for not just for me for my faculty I was chair of my department I'm just about to step down so I got it from everybody, the students, the administration, my faculty, and it was rough for everybody. Mm -hmm. It really was. So the idea of actually still being around after you die is kind of scary. <laughs> just like, let me sleep. <laughs> All right, can this, can't this, this, can't this just be it? You know, but yeah, I do. I talk, I, I write sometimes about my own work. I rethink my artist statements constantly. Mm -hmm. um, I've applied to a few things. I'm a Elizabeth Foundation shift resident this year. Mm -hmm. Not a great year to be in a residency where you can't go and use the studio. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. But, but the uh, networking opportunity is awesome. I'm the oldest person in the cohort. This is like kind of where I am now and where I'm gonna be, but that's okay. I know that there's a history of artists who started working after they finished a career in something else. Absolutely. You know, that kind of thing. So I'm not unique in that at all. Um, Alma Thomas, which is, you know, a black woman artist who, who is a colorist, uh, long gone now. And she didn't start until she had retired from being a teacher, mm -hmm. a young children's teacher, yeah. and started painting um, these beautiful abstracted um, nature forms, really amazing. And now her work is revered. Mm -hmm and has, is in the African-American canon, but that didn't happen in her lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am so excited about your work and where you're going with it. Um, and, you know, all these residencies and exhibitions and things, they can't be anything other than a great thing. Um, and I'm super excited. I'm also so grateful and we are all out on a postcard, totally honored and just, 
tremendously excited to have you involved in the exhibition. So thank you so much for donating kindly your artworks to us. And just to finally wrap up, you did touch a little bit on your postcards, um, but if you could just talk through um, just a little bit about what you have donated to Art on a Postcard, just for our listeners to get a little bit of a scoop on the artwork. Well, I'll tell you what I did. First of all, I, I appreciated the invitation to uh, submit work that was, un un I wasn't expecting it at all. And it just was because my work was seen and they felt that, okay, we can get donations because people will want her work. So that's amazing. I had just started the Josephine Baker piece, which yeah. is a composite of three photographs of her because I wanted the top piece, the torso piece with her hands over her head with the banana skirt but there was no legs and no feet. So I found plausible legs of hers in another photograph and feet of hers from another photograph and put the three of them together and began the painting. And I have um, a habit of photographing my paintings along the way. So I had an in progress photograph of that painting before it was as far along as it is now with just the outlines of the banana skirt and the jewelry. And I decided to make that into the postcard and then hand gel the gold and the silver onto her bangles and onto her necklace and onto the banana skirt. So that's how that came into being was that I saw pretty much like an unfinished painting that I could finish in another form. And then I used um, a, a Dan mask actually, that's a bird mask. And I took a photograph of the mask, cut it out the right size for the postcard. And so it is collaged. It, it's a mixed media because it has gel, it has pen and ink, it has a photograph on it. All of that is in that one piece. And I did all three of them by hand. So that's what you got. Yeah, it's, they are so beautiful. They're so, I, I was, before I, um, I knew that I was having this chat with you, but just blind, I was looking through the cards, like the first time I was having a look through them and I was like, <gasps> who's this? We need, I need to do a podcast with this person. I was like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> I'm already doing a podcast with Margaret. Um, so yeah, I, I know that our listeners and our supporters and the people that come to Art on the Postcard regularly are just going to be so happy to see those pieces involved in the exhibition. So well, I hope that they are swooped up right yeah. away. And yeah. it's an auction, right? So yeah, exactly. can read over each other. Yeah, exactly. It's a very nerve wracking, but exciting day for us looking at the sort of bids when they finally close um, to raise some great money for the Hepatitis C Trust. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for giving up time to talk today. I know I promised you it would be between 20 and 40 minutes, but you were just too interesting. I didn't want to cut it off. <laughs> yeah, do what you what you got to do. Awesome. Right. I really appreciate you, Rosa. Yeah, I've had a lovely, lovely chat with you. I've really, really. Uh, thank it. you. Thank you. Now go have dinner. Okay, I will. And I guess it's lunchtime for you. Lunchtime for me. Yeah. All right, sweetie. Take care. All, All right. right. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. Margaret was just so brilliant, wasn't she? You can find more about her project on her website, www.mrvendrews.com. 
and on her Instagram at mrvendries. Similarly, all the info for the summer auction can be found at artonapostcard.com and on our socials at Art on a Postcard, where we regularly post updates, cards, interviews, studio footage, and all that good stuff. I will see you next time for an interview with the collage artist Liberty Blake. Until then, take care. <laughs>